This is bonus episode number two, The Making of the Coffin Affair, from the podcast The Coffin Affair, A Miscarriage of Justice Revisited, and I'm Catherine Campbell. In this episode, the producer and research assistant Hannah Irwin and I will be discussing some of our thoughts about the making of this podcast, what was involved in gathering the data, getting the information, and interviewing people as part of our research in the Gaspé in the summers of 2017 and 2019. So maybe we can start with this. Hannah, why do you think people still care about this case? Probably because it was one of the last death penalty cases in Canada and for sure the most high-profile death penalty case of the kind of final five men that were hanged. And was it the last case in Quebec? I believe so. Yeah, Yeah, I believe so. And I think just because of the uncertainty surrounding it, it's really lasted in Canadian history. I mean, a lot of wrongful conviction cases in Canada become like a big part of the, well, you see that everywhere, become a big part of like the cultural memory, like David Milgard, like everyone knows him. I think Wilbert Coffin was kind of just like that, but 50 years earlier, you know. And uh, that's actually, that makes sense. And when you went to the gas bay and you were, we were there for that like 10 days or whatever, um, what was your sense of, of that area, the people that just maybe tell us a bit what you thought about the gas bay? It was definitely in the middle of nowhere. It took us hours to drive there along like such tiny roads and it really feels like they're completely cut off, especially now that they don't have a train anymore that goes through there. It's like impossible for them. They're really out of contact with the rest of Quebec. So I think it would be weird, especially then to have a case become so like high profile and to have people from out of town coming. I mean, they had more tourists back then, so it was more normal, but... What did you find? Did you find it was super, very destitute? Um, desolate, I think. More. Desolate, Des- yeah. Des- well, and destitute, too. I think there's a lot of poverty there. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah, but I did mean desolate. I think. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. But I, I do think, um, but, and when you, when we spoke to people, what was the f- sense that you got about today? Like, this is last summer that we were yeah. there, right? Like, and there's se- the sense of, of what people thought about the case. Well, everyone remembered it and, like, had an opinion on it. And pretty much everyone thinks he's innocent. Like, it's just like, oh, of course he's innocent, as if it's a fact. But it's crazy how it's still so remembered there. And I think a lot of people there want it to be kind of even wider. They really want, like, acknowledgement from the government or from other parts of Canada that he was innocent. Do you think that's just his family or was it? It seems to be, like, a big part of the community, too. Um, At least one... uh, Cynthia? Cynthia the Patterson? Cynthia Patterson. She is very, like, much keeping the case alive, and she's clearly, like, a big member of her community as a reverend. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, I think a lot of people, when we told them, like, we were interviewing them about the podcast or about making a documentary, they were, like, excited about the idea of this case being kind of having more attention brought to it again. I think there's only one person we met who was seemed he wasn't quite convinced if Wilbert Coffin was Who was that? About. I can't remember. Um, the guy who talked to us about the Jeep in the library. Oh, yeah. That was um, 
that was Jean-Pierre Blanchard. Yeah, he he was a historian, and we did interview him in, in the Gaspé Library, I remember, and he's written a story about the Yellow Jeep. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you're right. He he was a bit skeptical about mm-hmm. whether or not Wilbur Coffin, like most people were adamant. That he was innocent, yeah. I think he was more skeptical. He put like more emphasis on, or he talked more about the fact that Wilbur Coffin had stolen things. Like that seemed to be like a bigger deal for him. And I think a lot of other people in Gaspé like don't give that a second thought that he stole from these tourists, you know? But he did say this, I because I, he, he sent me something he recently got published. I don't mm-hmm. know if I sent it to you yet, but... Um, about the Jeep, and he said a murderer, no, a, a thief was hanged for oh, murder. for murder. Yeah, so, I mean, and, and and it's funny, I think there's this attitude, not necessarily there, but that people have about wrongful conviction, well, you know, he stole that stuff, so therefore he's not trustworthy, and yeah. why should we believe that he didn't murder them? Yeah. So how would you, what would you say to that? Well, well I think what uh, Michael, the lawyer, said about, like, like really? Yeah, yeah, the culture back then of like bush pilfering of stealing from tourists is really important for this case specifically because that really makes it seem like oh it wasn't even like Wilbur Coffin was particularly criminal or you know had bad intentions he was just kind of doing what all Gaspésians did which was you know when you came across an abandoned truck maybe like you know, take you stole stuff you stole what you wanted. And apparently that was normal. Um, I think what's more, like, makes him more of an, un, like, trustworthy witness is just how much of an alcoholic he clearly was. But yeah. It's funny, in, in writing up the sixth episode, I was looking at um, something that Clément Fortin has said, and he wrote a book called L'Affaire Coffin in Supercherie, which in English is a deception. And he's a lawyer and, a, and a, a law professor. And he looked at the case, the trial. He read all of the, um, the witness statements. He, he did a very, very thorough job. And he basically said, I think that, that given what the jury had in front of him, they came to the only conclusion they could have. And he's still a bit on the fence of whether or not he thinks Coffin is guilty or innocent. But one of the things he did say, because I just today was looking at some an article on Le Soleil that he had been interviewed for, and he said that that was a huge issue. He was an alcoholic, and according to him, I'm not yeah. saying if it's true or not, but that he was five years in, in Europe during World War II, yeah. and he came back and he may have had what we would, this is, now these are his words, not mine, that he may have had PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, whereas, I mean, in the 1950s, nobody even knew what that meant, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and so he said if he was tried today, he would likely be convicted of manslaughter. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I thought I had never read that before. But yeah, yeah you're right. I mean, there were many incidences where he drove from from the Gaspé to Montreal where he ended up in the ditch. Yeah, like a concerning a number of times yeah. he had to be pulled out of the ditch. And I think he spent, like, how much money he spent on alcohol, I think, more than any other expense, you know? Right, was, so. right. And we don't want to malign his character because no, I do no. think most people said that he was a, a very kind, yeah. generous person. But I think to discount the alcohol would be wrong because yeah. I do think it played a role in possibly the reputation he garnered and why he became a suspect. Yeah. And I think that most wrongful conviction cases, the person that is accused and gets wrongfully convicted has a bit of a not character flaws, but ha- lives in more, yeah, they're more marginalized. They have like, you know, he was an alcoholic. He was a petty thief. Like 
he was a bit untrustworthy. Like he lied to that uh, McDonald that he was going to bring him back into the bush, but he was also a million positive things, but those made him an easy target. The negative things are why he was easy. He had a wife and a child. He had a girlfriend and he had a child with his girlfriend in like a very Catholic period of the, you know, Quebec history. So all of these characteristics, which don't make him a bad person, make him an easy target, an easy target because he's less, has a worse reputation. Right. And, and the fact, and I think add to that, that, he came from, he, he didn't come from a wealthy family, right? Like, yeah, he came from a poor family. And he was part of the English minority at the time. Exactly. That that, well, that might have played a role in it. It may have. Yeah. It may have. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I'm clearly biased and probably you are too. Yeah. We don't think he's he's guilty. No. And from the people we talked to, from the evidence we saw, we haven't been able to find any indication that he was. There's no direct evidence. They knew They knew that at the trial. But I think the his lawyer, which you know clearly was not competent to to defend him or defended him in my view in an incompetent way, mm-hmm. um, has that contributed hugely. And there yeah. are you know people in the lawyers in, in this you know era who look at what he did and said there's one lawyer, um, Greenspan, who says Greenspan actually who said you know he basically tied the noose for him because he didn't let him testify. He didn't give him a defense at all, no, right? No. And I think Cynthia Patterson said this. People in the Gaspé at the time, there was not a lot of educated people. Often people didn't finish high school. A lot of them, most of them didn't go to university. I'm generalizing, but this is what she said. And there was a lot more trust of authority, right? Because what did the average, what did Wilbert Coffin's like family, a poor family, was know about, you know, like the legal system? Right. They would never think that it would work against them, that it would conspire against Wilbert in this way. I think everyone expected it to be a fair trial. And then you look at what happened with the lawyers where like the lawyer they originally hired was completely blocked from serving Wilbur Coffin. And then this guy comes out of nowhere, has some kind of tie to Duplessis and just provides a terrible defense, is himself an alcoholic, you know, as well. And it's like, you know, this guy was clearly like, clearly they were set up, but they didn't have the you know, they didn't know that they were being set up and they never would have suspected that they were being set up. But I think that's where people have trouble. And this was part of Jacques Hébert's problem. I mean, he wrote those controversial books, right? And Jacques Les Assassins de Coffin, I accused Coffin, the assassins of Coffin. It ended up resulting in the Broussard Commission of Inquiry. And they basically said, you know, the police were actually Van Hoot, who was involved in the investigation, was police was looking at how the policing went on. So it was completely biased. Yeah. But it's kind of like, okay, was there a conspiracy? I, I'm not comfortable with saying that. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, Duplessis, in many ways, it seems through many, several actions that we talked about in the podcast, felt himself to be above the law, so he could direct. Uh, I mean, look at the uh, Ron Corelli, the Jehovah's Witness, who he took away his liquor license, the Duplessis orphans, that huge scandal. And now we have coffins. So you have a, you know, tourism, a huge industry in the 1950s in Quebec. And you want to, um, and then you have this murder of not one tourist, but three. Yeah. And and in a horrific way, I mean, you know, they were, looks like the two young boys were shot, but their bodies were mauled by bears. I mean, that's 
fairly graphic and horrific. And then they couldn't even find Eugene Lindsay's skull. So, I mean, it was an awful thing, yeah. right? So then add so then you have Duplessis who feels very powerful seeing like, okay, we have to do damage control on this mm-hmm. and we're going to pick, you know, we're going to solve this crime. I doubt he said in his mind, I don't care who it is. I want somebody to, to, to hang for this, but that seems to me what happened. Yeah. You know? Well, I think, and now we know, especially now when there's a million, you know, podcasts and documentaries about wrongful conviction and like how the police work. But I think a lot of times the time crunch and like the pressure of solving the murder quickly really hinders the police. And they really just have to go with like the easiest target almost or the most likely target. And then they like, z- they zeroed in very quickly on Wilbert Coffin. Like he was their only suspect. And I think that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. even to this day. And I think, but now people know that. So they're a lot more careful that like they know when, the, if the police come and start questioning them about a murder, even if they're innocent in the back of their heads, they're like, I should probably talk to a lawyer or I should be careful what I say, because if I just am the most convenient suspect, I could very easily go down for this, even if I'm not the murderer, you know? So maybe what you're saying then is that this faith in the criminal justice system to get it right in 1953 yeah doesn't exist in 2020 yeah I for think a lot that's of people true for most yeah. people yeah and i don't think it existed for everyone in 1953 but i think in the gas bay it definitely it might did. have yeah. yeah okay okay and i think they might be more skeptical of it now like we've heard some people say like his wilbur coffin's niece said you know i don't trust the especially there was like the government and several things happened in the gas bay region after like the i don't know if you want to talk about the the village that was oh yeah. Park, Ferlian Park yeah yeah in the nineteen seventies right yeah nineteen seventies do you want to t- uh, no you can talk about it. okay well that that was um, some land that was expropriated by the I believe it was provincial government in the nineteen seventies it's a beautiful now provincial park right on the coast of the Gaspé it's like a peninsula that kind of goes out where this park is and there were many families living on it. And they they had no say, this is prior to the park, and they had no say in how it was, uh, you know, how much they would get for their property or if they they could refuse and what was quite sad. So they took, so they didn't have a lot of time to get out of the park and people told the stories about their house being bulldozed without them being able to empty yeah, it. You without know? getting all the stuff out. Like, right. Because they were kind of protesting the decision and then they were just right. pushed out. And that, that, I think that mm-hmm. adds to this mistrust of government. And even latterly, there's, there were, there was a cemetery, I believe, in the park. Oh, and yeah. people that had family members there had to pay admission into the park to go to the cemetery. Yeah, that's Which true. is really wrong. And yeah. that's changed. So that has changed. And now they have anyone who, I get I think, had property there is given free access. But, I mean, just imagine already they've taken your house away. Then you can't even go to a family member's head, grave and put Without flowers entrance fee exactly exactly so i think like all these things after the wilbur coffin case kind of added to this distrust but that had happened in the 50s right the provincial government was just providing them with you know tourists and pretty much leaving them alone most of the time so there wasn't really that much of a and i think like when you talked about us going there the remoteness of it i think that that probably contributed to the fact that it was able to happen, like I'm thinking in the city of Montreal, like or even Quebec City, if something like that had happened, I don't think. Plus, I mean, it was that very long period of time where, where they were left dead in the woods, it seems, and and you yeah. know, and as we said, the bears 
all the bodies and and then you know Wilbur being the last person because it was so remote he was the last person to see them alive that we know about Mm -hmm. and um so yeah it's uh I think it's very um it's problematic okay so uh one thing I wanted to talk about too was um what do we think actually happened so like in terms of we don't think Wilbert Coffin killed the hunters, but do you have a theory yourself about what happened? Well, I think I like very much believe Michael Rooney's explanation. Okay. I think it makes the most sense. Just can you, can you reiterate it just again? So what Michael Rooney thinks is what happened is two Americans that knew uh, the victims, uh, knew Eugene Lindsay, uh, like came upon them when Wilbert Coffin was still there. They all had dinner, and then they offered to drive the hunters because their truck was still broken down. And I never realized the distance between the campsites, but from where Eugene Lindsay's party, where their truck was broken down to the campsites that they were going to, it was like a two or four kilometer drive. So I think the Americans offered to first take the boys to the campsite that they were going to. I think that's what he said. Yeah. Drove over like with a car full of their hunting stuff. And then maybe as they were unloading, attacked and killed the two boys drove back to get Eugene Lindsay, drove him to his campsite, like started a fire, had drinks with him, and then uh, kind of surprised him and murdered him. Um, Why? I think because of some kind of work ties, maybe criminal work ties that he had. I mean, Michael Rooney has been doing a lot of research on like what eugene Lindsay was involved in and like he's publishing a book so he didn't go into too much detail with us obviously but i think what he said was that eugene Lindsay was kind of a greedy man and he was involved with a lot of not so nice people and i think he just took money or held back money from the wrong person and they ordered a hit on him and i think that was what happened and i think the boys were just like in the wrong place at the wrong time and they even said i mean this is very like conjecture but that the way the tire tracks moved and like there was some kind of u-turn maybe suggests that that they were going after Wilbur Coffin that they wanted to get rid of the last witness but it was too okay. difficult to move the car I mean I don't think that's what Rooney said that was my own interpretation okay because cars. Wilbur Coffin the the night that he left he had seen the two people right he said that too yeah yeah the night he left he so he met the just to reiterate for, yeah so the night that Wilbur Coffin or the day that he drove Richard Lindsay to get the fuel pump and then back to the campsite, had dinner with the, the Lindsay party plus the two Americans. Then he went to his camp another, say, six kilometers away. Yeah. And that's what you're referring to. Yeah, exactly. Because okay. I think that same day that Wilbert Coffin met them was the day that they were murdered, most likely. And I think yeah. that they might have, they would have known where Wilbert Coffin, I think he would have said, going to stay in this camp for the night. And I think maybe they would have thought, oh, we should, he could identify us. And he did try to, but he didn't know enough about them. That's interesting. And you know something, too, I want to mention that my students, because I've, I've used this podcast now for two classes. And one of the things my students remarked on, which I hadn't, hadn't really thought about, mm-hmm. was the idea that, do you remember... Uh, Eugene Lindsay said to Wilbur Coffin, could you come by in two days when you're, because Wilbur Coffin said, I'm just going to go prospect for mining, uh, you know, for two days. And then I'm going back to Gaspé and Eugene Lindsay said, would you mind stopping by and look, you know, remember we know that, right. And what what, a couple of students said to me is maybe Eugene Lindsay 
was afraid of these guys. That's so true. It could be. It could be. It never occurred to me. Me either. Me either. And I thought, a few students said that, and I thought, that may be. It was kind of like, I don't trust these two guys that are here now. I can't really tell you that, but I'm asking you to come and check on us. Yeah, especially because if you said it in front of these two Americans, like, will you come back and check on us in two days? It's almost like saying to them, Someone's going to come and see if we're exactly. alive and they know that you were here. Or like, I don't, these people are, you know, because what are you, you're in the middle of literally nowhere. And, and Hannah and I went and it's saw, so it is no. so, it's so desolate. The so. odds of running into two people that you knew from Pennsylvania. I mean, he was a part of a hunter's club, but I don't think yeah. these, who knows if these two men yeah. were a part of it. And still like, maybe, okay, they're in the same, you run into them in the town, but on the road, on the way to the, yeah. that can't be a coincidence. No. You know? No. So, I mean, who yeah. I, I do think, I, I think you're right. I agree with you too. I, I believe Michael's yeah. version of events. I think he, he knows this case more than anybody that we interviewed really just, yeah. you know, historically. And, and the thing about that's interesting about Michael is that he's living in the States and he's done a lot of research in Pennsylvania. He's spoken to the victims' families, mm-hmm. which I don't think anyone else has done you know some of the other books also very good but I don't think anyone's done the level of research that Michael has but at the same time um and and uh, understandably he was reticent to share exactly all of his research with us because he's waiting to publish his own book yeah so that's fine but I think there were some other things that that we kind of garnered from that too isn't there something else yeah uh, maybe about Eugene Lindsay's like his reputation yeah. in Pennsylvania um or the town that he was from. Altoona, like yeah. Like, that no one was surprised, according to Michael, that he was murdered. Right, And right. I think his wife received, like, a lot of nasty comments after he died about how he got what was coming to him. And okay, okay. So I don't know if he was really that um, well-liked. Not that he obviously just that means anything. I mean, he's still a victim, but it's just interesting. Well, oh, something that Michael said that I thought was really interesting is he said, you know, someone's entire, like, if a man is involved in, organized crime what are the odds he's murdered you know by someone who's not also involved in organized crime like that's really you know right like yeah you you don't sort of I I think that's a good point like certainly you know living in Montreal there's organized crime here and if anyone who is involved dies we kind of know that the and the suspects are often other organized criminals right whereas Wilbur and what would Wilbur Coffin have to do with these people why like and, and I think one of the things again that's that came up time and time again is that this is a man who was, who apparently stole very minor objects off these people. There were four, I think three brand new rifles, four rifles were left at the crime scene. There was all kinds of stuff left there. And, and the money again, from what certainly from what Michael says, if that was a motive for murder, well then he would have had thousands on him because Eugene Lindsay did not travel with small amounts of money. No. And also, the things that were found in Wilbur Coffin's possession, like a suitcase, like binoculars, towel. like the stuff that was left in the woods, like a camping stove, like yeah. there was all this material and all these things that he would have actually gotten use out of. There's no way he would have left those behind. If know? his motive was, was that. that yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense. The other thing I want to talk about a little bit is the um, us trying to get access to the police records oh, yeah. from the Sûreté de Québec. Now that has been like when I first started looking into this case for, for research purposes was 2017. And I filed the first time I went to the Gaspé was 20, 
17. And I filed an access to information request with the Sûreté de Québec, which took them about nine months to even look at. Mm. And then they began, I think, giving me a runaround. And I finally spoke to someone about a year after, after leaving many, many phone messages. And he said, you know, that there were over 2,000 pages that had to be redacted. Now, this is almost a 70-year-old murder case. Why that would be, I don't know, which I asked the man. He said, well, madame, you don't understand, whatever. Almost everyone involved in the case is dead now. Exactly, exactly. Like, I don't really get it but I think um and then I started calling this one man and he never returned my calls this one officer and then the pandemic started and I I would call him and you couldn't leave a message on his answering machine it was full for about three months Mm -hmm. which to me I'm sorry that's not competent and then when I finally was able to they, they left another message saying email us and they gave the wrong email address so i don't think it uh, is it conspiracy is it incompetency i don't know but Either way it's the same result yeah, yeah yeah now i know clement fortin tried to get access to the documents that were used for the brossard commission inquiry and he was refused oh really? well he was first granted them and then the Sûreté appealed it to the court of uh, the Quebec Court of Appeal, and they agreed with them that there were there was information in those documents that were um, uh, well. How did he put it? I, I just read an article about it on, in Le Soleil, basically saying that that would provide him information about police investigative practices that they didn't want to get out, and that that they could only be released in 2064, a hundred years after the commission. That's insane. That I know. just tells you that. Something bad. That commission like, was what? dirty, you know, and well, I or mean, something. Like, right? what are they trying to hide? And it happened with Wilbert Coffin's family too. What yeah. did they ask for? Like his autopsy results, or and I'm like, wondering if nobody's. Like, you're right. They asked for access to some files, and they were told a hundred years. And I tried to find access to to a legislation that would dictate that. I couldn't. A civil procedure. I'm not sure where it would be, but um, you're right. Now I wonder. The Sûreté has never said that to me. Yeah. That, you know, you have to wait 100 years. The Sûreté no. has said, we're redacting it, and we have two full-time police officers on this file. I'm thinking, really? Anyway, I'm very skeptical of, of what they're what they're doing. I think that they just don't want this kind of bad press, or they just don't want us to see, like, the... But you think if this was a new generation of the police and a new generation of Quebec, like, law enforcement, that they would be open about the... Why? Because they're younger? Well, no, because, like, to move on from the bad... Pra- like, if they're different than the cops were in the 50s, then they would be open about the mistakes that the cops had made in the past, and they would be open about how they're different. But just trying to hide... Like, just trying to hide the practices, like, the policing practices that were carried out on this case, because clearly they you know, don't come across as, like, fair or just competent. or competent, yeah. just kind of, like, doesn't give me a lot of faith in the police now, you know, which I'm not sure anyone should have, but the least you could do is say, okay, here's everything that we did. Let's be open. That we condemn it and we're not, we don't do right. this anymore, you know? But I think that makes logical sense, but I also think that um, there's a culture in policing that um, tends to uh, hide mistakes. in conflict mistakes. Yeah, because I think people don't want to, I mean, just for example, in the Brossard Commission, it was um, one of the police officers who was involved in the actual investigation into Wilbert Coffin's case was in charge 
of examining the police actions in, in Wilbur Coffin's case. Now, that was 1964, and now many police forces across the country have independent um, agencies that will investigate police use of lethal force or any kind of complaints. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think it's kind of like any wrongful conviction. People don't want to admit they make, they've made errors and they don't want to apologize. And is it a fear of litigation? I don't think so much, maybe more so in the USA where you'd be sued Mm -hmm. civilly for that. It's very hard to do that here. But I think people don't like want to admit they've made a mistake. Yeah. But they have such a good excuse with like Duplessis. Like that was a, you know, an error basically where Quebec under was under a dictatorship, you know, maybe it's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's what we like to say. Yeah. So they could say, well, you know, we couldn't investigate any other angle. We couldn't even investigate, you know, his ties to Americans and Americans that might've done it because Duplessis specifically said, you know, under the table, you can't, or, or solve this and yeah, solve it fast. Solve it fast. Yeah. Don't look at any American connections. This well, we don't know. He, we don't know if he said that. We don't know if he said that, but they could very easily say that. You know what I mean? Like the police yeah. have a oh, have I an see. out here with like Duplessis as like the premier it as an a, scapegoat. Yeah, as a scapegoat. So they could say these mistakes were made, but we were forced to make them. We knew they were wrong then. Like I just think they have a lot of ways to get out. But I guess it's easier to just hide it all together, and they don't have to talk about it. And I don't think it. people care that much. The police, or just in general? In, maybe in general. Like I think, I think law students today they may know who about Duplessis from the Ron Corelli case, the Jehovah's Witness case. That there's yeah. a constitutional law case you have to study. But otherwise, like uh, you know, outside Gaspésie, like did you had you heard about it? Duplessis? No, well, had you heard about Coffin? No, no, no. I don't. And I and I think having done a lot of research on miscarriages of justice and wrongful convictions, I think. People are far more aware that the, how flawed the justice system can be and how these errors happen today. But even so, I mean, it takes years, years yeah. to overturn them. Years. And I think in Canada, people are much more aware of the issues in the States than in Canada. I don't know. Why do you say that? Just because there's so much more attention given to American cases, like the Central Park Five. I think because right. of the ties to the American president, like everyone kind of knows about that case. But who was the... The case that the group from Toronto worked on with the Bob Oh, uh, was that on. was um, Reuben Carter. Reuben Hurricane Carter. Carter. Yeah, but that was Canadians. That was who helped him get out. Yeah. Right? But there's, yeah. or just like any kind of Canadian wrongful conviction case, like I've heard about through you, but there's not as much. Like the little boy who was supposed to be hanged. Oh, for Stephen long, Trescott. Stephen Trescott, like. I don't know anyone who knows Stephen Trescott's name. You know? I mean, and that was that. That's another case. I think that that's a nice segue to another area we can talk about. But that was another case that I think it was because that was 1959. Yeah, helped um, us come to an abolitionist pers- okay. perspective and death penalty. Yeah, so maybe we can talk about that a bit. So that so Coffin's case was in 56. It wasn't abolished till 62. There were two more. Canadians hanged, I believe, in Toronto Dawn Jail, like the mm-hmm. same day, like one after the other. Oh, yeah. really? And then that was it. So, why do you think, given the similarities in and in in our culture and American culture, that we've moved away so far from it from the death penalty? Yeah. Mm, well, I think it has to be tied a little bit to the just like 
issues with race that we have in Canada versus in the U.S. Like, we still have a lot of racism in Canada, but I don't know. It doesn't seem to be as... I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. No, I think no. I think I hear what you're getting at, but I do think we have, uh, you know, there's systemic racism all yeah. over Canada, and our criminal justice system is filled with Indigenous, indigenous people. people. And I think they continue to... Like, the Starlight Tours of Indigenous people yeah. was kind of like Canadian police lynching or whatever. Yeah, but it was. But for some reason, I think we abolish the death penalty. I don't know why. I feel like when we abolish it in the 60s, the U.S., Really well, we didn't abolish it then. It, it was, I think, there was a moratorium on it. Sixty-two oh, okay. was. It was only abolished in seventy-six, and that was because Trudeau was the prime minister, and many uh, he, people feel that his involvement coffin. in the coffin case, where he was Coffin's lawyer for the defamation suit that was brought against him following the Brassard Commission inquiry, yeah, um, at which was he was convicted, and then he's such a firebrand, a Barry. He was such an amazing guy. Yeah. Sorry that we never got to meet him, but he. Um, he went to jail for like five days or something. And then he was so appalled at the conditions in the jail that he started advocating for prisoners after that. But, yeah. but Trudeau was his lawyer then. And I think we didn't have a charter, right? We didn't, yeah, have, we a, didn't have, no. Anything. And now we do. And, and now we know we don't have to, well, most people know you don't have to talk to the police if you don't want to. Yeah. I do think that that maybe it seems like, Oh, just such a random event that it, Trudeau, like the future prime minister of Canada, was defending the future senator who was, you know, writing a book saying like, oh, the system set up this man to be murdered. But like, clearly that event had sure. to, definitely has to do with the fact that the death penalty was, you know, abolished by Trudeau. Yeah. And but it's it, yeah. good luck that yeah. he was just like happened to be representing Hubert for that case. Yeah. But, you know, we had a conference, my Innocence Project had a conference in 2019 on the death penalty, and we talked about Wilbur Coffin's case, and um, we had his sister there. We had one of the lawyers from Innocence Canada that's working on trying to for him to be exonerated, but at this point it seems impossible because so much time has passed and most people are dead that could have said anything about the case. But um, I think in Canada um, it was only abolished, fully abolished in 1998 when they took out... Um, it was finally removed from the National Defense Act, although they hadn't oh, okay. they hadn't hanged anybody. Um, but no, it was it was only in 1987, so that's not that long ago. It was raised again in Parliament and was defeated on a free vote of 148 to 127. So 140. That's, that's really close. Yeah. Maybe too the time that it was abolished because Coffin had been hanged, and I think most of Canada after the case, like especially after Jacques Hubert wrote his book, a lot of Canadians. Believed that and and uh, John Beliveau wrote a book too. Uh, John Beliveau, yeah. yeah. It just was like, even if he wasn't innocent, it was evident that he wasn't given a fair trial. Right. And then he was murdered, so there was nothing to do about it. And then Stephen Truscott, who... 59, right. He was a minor, and he was later found out to be wrongfully convicted, but he served time in prison, but he was almost hanged for committing a murder that he didn't commit. And right. I think, like, once, you know, two almost wrongfully like one man who was wrongfully murdered and one man who was almost wrongfully yeah. murdered in the span of four years I think that's a lot yeah. yeah yeah but I think as people forget about these cases and you just hear about all the horrible people who do horrible things that get let out of prison after 20 years people start to become more punishment focused conservative, conservative yeah. or almost like how can this man get out and recommit more crimes like why are we wasting our time spending taxpayer money so he can live in prison but 
And and it's yeah. crazy like that. Those kinds of cases are so rare. The parole board is so so um, so difficult to it's, get. Yeah, out. it's really yeah. and they're very conservative. Very few people get out on parole, and most at the end of their mandate, where the parole board doesn't really have any say in whether or not they can stay in longer, unless they're a long term offender or a dangerous offender. But what I also wanted to say was um, one of the things that courts are doing now. First of all, when they abolished the death penalty, they instituted life sentences right mm -hmm. so life for first degree murder that's planned and, and premeditated is 25 year minimum second degree that's every other murder falls into that category and judges have a um some discretion about how long they can keep somebody in jail until they're eligible for parole and people forget that just because you're eligible you doesn't mean you'll get it. no it doesn't mean you'll get out like who uh the ken and barbie killers oh um paul bernardo he's never gonna get parole. no i don't think he yeah. will i don't think so he even will. though he was sentenced to 25 years i don't think he he's will. a dangerous offender he's a, so they can keep him he was yeah. sentenced to life Oh, They're all he? life sentences oh, yeah, for true. murder. It's all life sentences. And then it's 25 years till parole. That's right. Oh, so even I seem like, but you didn't know, yeah, okay. I didn't know that. But, I mean, you haven't studied it. So, But, but the, see, like, if people don't know that, no. you know, and they just think, oh, Paul Bernardo can get out of prison after 25 years and go back to murdering people, why don't we just hang him? But it's because yeah. of Wilbur Coffin, you know? But the thing is, too, what's happened in courts recently is these um, – when you have a homicide where it's a double homicide or triple homicide, or you see, for example, in the, the, the uh, Moss killing case in Quebec city, that, that man that was convicted, his parole eligibility is, I think it's 75 years. Oh, because it's the yeah. executive. Yeah. So, the, and that never used to happen ever. Yeah. So I think essentially we're coming to a place where we can impose sentences, life sentences without the possibility of parole. Because if no. you can't can't apply until fifty years have passed and you're forty years old and you're going like you're dying in prison, right. and I yeah. think it should be called a like I know abolitionists of life sentences don't call it a life sentence; they call it death by prison. There you go. Yeah. Which is it's a substitute for the death penalty, which is just as right. right. It not in some ways it is just as horrible to give someone no hope of reform or well, I think it depends on what you're your uh objective of, of sentencing is so yeah. if you if you want it to be uh, a deterrent well that person probably can't commit the same crimes that maybe they can in prison yeah. or if your objective is is incapacitation then put them in jail for the rest of their yeah. life is your if your objective is retribution then kill them so i yeah. think it really depends on what you want but i, I think as a society in canada we've we've, I think, tried to be a bit more humane mm -hmm. with, with prison. I mean, I'm sure my colleagues, the university would argue differently, but, um, certainly the fact that we have, we don't have a death penalty gives me some kind of hope. Yeah. You know? And I think like, no matter what you're like, how you want to punish people that you think, you know, for sure committed these crimes, there's always the like wrongful conviction hasn't gone away. Right. And that's always a possibility when you're sentencing someone to life in prison or to die in prison, you don't know that they're, they've 100% committed the crime. And also I think people really believe that if someone, if you can prove someone's innocent, it's not that hard to get them out. Right, exactly. But the point. process of overturning a conviction in Canada is very difficult, Yeah, it, right? takes, it takes a long, long, long time. And don't you need the Minister of Justice, like themselves, right. to like free them or kind well of yeah that's we talked about that in podcast six where yeah. it's the criminal conviction review group that 
that basically takes a file that's gone through all its appeals and there has to be evidence that a miscarriage of justice likely occurred. They take that case and they they make a recommendation after investigating it to the minister and then the minister can decide to order a new trial or send it back to the Court of Appeal for hearing on a question. And um, that doesn't happen that often. My research in that has shown that very few cases tend to make it to, um, there are many cases that are applied to the Criminal Conviction Review Group, and the ones that they accept to uh, recommend to the minister that a miscarriage of justice occurred, those cases are likely to be overturned. So let's say, I forget my statistics on it, but I think um, when you apply, you have a very minute chance of actually being uh, recommended, um, but if you are recommended and the courts hear your case again, you have a very high chance of being acquitted. Mm-hmm. So, so there is some hope there, but that process and that's time for, uh, you know, that just takes years to yeah, complete, yeah. even if you do get, yeah. And you have to have new evidence that was yeah. not used in the original trial. Right. And that involves a lot. And, you know, yeah. and think about that's And that's where Wilbur Coffin's case is right now mm-hmm. that this criminal conviction review group has had his file for a while Innocence Canada has tried to add to the file, yeah. but I mean, well, even Wilbert Coffin's case at the time in the fifties, if they hadn't say they hadn't found new evidence, the fact that like his defense didn't provide a defense at all, that wouldn't have been enough for him to get a new trial. No, even though that was probably the reason he was convicted. Yeah, you know? yeah. because I mean, all was... the evidence that was submitted probably could have been debated or refuted or whatever. If but... if he had had a proper defense, yeah, yeah. So like that. The reason I think that's the reason he got convicted, and that wouldn't have been grounds for a retrial under. Well, it, uh, it it's, it's technical. That if you were arguing at, at an appeal, ineffective assistance of counsel, which is what would it would have been, I think, a grounds there. The courts, I don't know. I mean, this was the fifties, yeah. right? Like now, the courts are reticent to to entertain that as a possible appeal. Yeah, because it's hard. The thing about an appeal is that the judges in an appeals court, they're not hearing the evidence. They're just hearing the arguments that were made at oh, the first yeah. trial. So it's not like you can introduce anything new, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and lawyers make all kinds of decisions, right? And they might be tactical. Like they may be because they think their witness will, you know, dem- condemn themselves or damn themselves mm-hmm. by, by actually. Testifying. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So that's harder to prove. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, are there any last thoughts that we have about this this uh, case that we've been intimately involved with for a couple of years now? No, I can't think of anything. Can you? Um, I guess just like final thoughts, like what happened to Wilbur Coffin is horrible. And I think it needs to be remembered because I think Canadians need to be more aware of how the justice system can get it wrong in Canada and the wrongful convictions that happened in Canada and the wrongful deaths that happened. And also I think just be more aware of how like it, you know, unfairly targets indigenous people. And if we brought back a death penalty, it would no doubt be disproportionately administered against indigenous people, I think is a safe conjecture. Yes, I think that's true. um, But also I think what happened to the victims is horrible. Like Richard and Eugene Lindsay and, Clarence Clark. I always get their name. Was it Clarence? Frederick Clark. Frederick Clarence, Clarence, the father. Yeah, the father. But, and also, too, for their families, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I think Michael Rooney talked to us about the victims' families because he's met the daughter and granddaughter, I believe, of, 
Uh, Certainly of Michael Rune, of yeah, Eugene Lindsay. And I think, you know, for them, do they believe? I don't think they believe it was necessarily well, because they, they accept it. They just accept the result. At least some of the ones he talked to, he said. But how much, like, peace they got from that result yeah. or how much they truly, you know, know for sure. Yeah. I think it's probably easier to just not. I mean, who knows? Maybe they're totally are like, no, Wilbur Coffin definitely did it. I mean, we didn't talk to them, but no, it either way nice. to have it tied to Wilbur Coffin, which I think he was wrongfully convicted, if they had found the person who actually had done it, I think it would have been over with. You know what I mean? It wouldn't have, not that it necessarily even resonates, but I'm just saying, I don't think a podcast would have been made 50 years later. 60. 60 years later, yeah. if they had gotten the right person <laughs> no, in the beginning. Right. Maybe it would have given the families more peace to leave it behind, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think it's a complicated case, and I think it really illustrates the problems with the criminal justice system then and also now. Mm-hmm. And so, thank you very much for all your work on this. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Okay. There's an error in this episode where I referred to Coffin's lawyer as Pierre Elliott Trudeau, when in fact Pierre Elliott Trudeau was Jacques Hébert's lawyer. Since we made this bonus episode number two, the law has changed regarding parole eligibility in cases of multiple murder. And Alexandre Bissonnette, uh, who we mentioned in the episode, appealed his sentence to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the Supreme Court has now changed the law going forward, so a multiple murders parole eligibility, the maximum amount of time is set at 25 years now, so his sentence has been changed. For more information on the Coffin case and the sources used for this podcast, please go to www.wilbertcoffinaffair.com.